So finally the smoke let up a tiny bit, um, though it's going to be around for a while, and I broke down and went out and mowed the lawn. That mess was knee-high. I could have bailed it up and sold it at the market. Anyway, I after that was poking around in the shop and I found a chunk of cherry wood and I remembered that a buddy of mine years ago used to say that he loved cherry wood. And since he's an electric guitar player, I decided to use it to make him a pedal board. For the uninitiated, a pedal board is uh, what a guitar player puts effects pedals on to change the sound of the guitar. You'll see, you know, like guitar players in a rock band or whatever, not jazz guys, but stepping on these things up under their microphone or in the front of the stage. I built a few of these things for people in my life. My wife has one. built one for a bandmate. I, of course, have one. I try to... Uh, I usually use kind of leftover materials and I make them all by hand, hand-cut joints, but I uh, try to get them to sort of reflect the personality of the person I'm making them for. I'm not 12-stepping it or anything, but I feel like I have not sufficiently expressed gratitude where it was due in my life. And I'm hoping that uh, these pedal boards that I'm making for people uh, will be taken as a token of that gratitude and appreciation. The particular guy I'm making this for, when I moved to Massachusetts, I had recently cut my finger off on my my index finger, my left hand, it had to be repaired surgically. It's a really painful and long recovery process. I think I've, I've talked about it on the podcast before. And it wasn't real clear that I was ever going to be able to play again. But I wanted to. Um, and so I did the really hard physical therapy. And my chops were really lacking at that time uh, for, for a number of reasons. I hadn't been playing very much. And then also, you know, recovering from the injury and had I not had the opportunity to play, I think probably I would have stopped playing music at the time, to be perfectly honest about it. But I met him. I moved in to my apartment in Massachusetts. And the first night I was there, I was outside walking the dog, which is part of the experience of, of uh, apartment life. I didn't have a dog door. I was out walking the dogs about 3 30, 4 o'clock in the morning. He pulled in the driveway, just come home from a gig out of town. And uh, I helped him load some of his gear back into the house and got to know him a little bit. And then, you know, he, he said to me a few days later, he said, Hey, you're playing the guitar up there. Here you play the guitar. And I didn't even really take guitars with me when I moved there. I thought that part of my life was probably done. I took a, an acoustic guitar. And anyway, it turned out, you know, he's a working musician. That was his job. He was he was every night out at the out at the bar, out at the night spot, whatever they were calling him then, and and uh, playing for that money. And he got me into playing again, and he. Uh, took me along, let me sit in at the gigs. I did a few gigs as a duo with him. I played with a lot of musicians that were way, way over my head. He taught me how to act like a pro when you walk in a bar. He taught me how to get paid at the end of the night. He taught me the golden rule of show up, tune up, shut up. You know, be serious about it. Don't screw around. 
you know, even though he and I met on the genteel North Shore of Boston, he was from the mean streets of Worcester. Worcester is uh, where the Rolling Stones kicked off their urban jungle tour in the, in the late 1980s. Uh, and it still has a reputation for being a rough town. We'd go play a club there and go out to breakfast afterwards, and there'd be more people on the street downtown Worcester at 3 o'clock in the morning than there were 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Yaya's downtown where we'd go after the gig. It'd have a, a wait at 3 o'clock. Or at least it would be packed with night people doing various night people things. I remember one time we were walking into into the club and members of a certain one percenter motorcycle organization were lining up outside as he walks past him he says to me by the way if we don't play some zz top tunes they're going to kill us i don't think he was entirely joking later that night though he he asked him to clap for one of my solos which didn't deserve applause by the way and they wouldn't so he stopped the band and made him clap before we play the next song again so that was the kind of that was the kind of setup he had going on there. You know, none of my bands I'd played in before were really like, you know, out at the bar playing for strangers, playing for people who were older than us, playing for people who were in a different social setting for us. And so none of that experience really taught me some of the important things about that world. And he really took the time and he taught me those things in a way that, that didn't seem like he was teaching them to me, frankly. We were just friends, you know. And I'm not just talking about how to avoid being the victim of methamphetamine-fueled violence in the parking lot. I mean, most of the stuff I'm talking about was musical because he allowed me to hang around. He put me in a position where I got to uh, excel musically in a way that I wouldn't have without him. He put me in playing situations that, frankly, I wasn't ready for, and probably some of the other musicians resented me being there, but frankly, I'm also grateful to them because they dragged me up, and I'm even more generally grateful for that because I would have not played, or I would have played a little bit, or I would have, you know, screwed around with it, or maybe I would have found the pain of my recovery from my finger injury to be greater than the satisfaction I got from playing, but having the opportunity to perform and sort of needing to get better to not embarrass myself at a club full of one percenters in Worcester, Massachusetts, really dragged me up. And I don't know that he would say he did a lot for me or he did a little for me. You know, we just were hanging out together. We were buddies. And, you know, on the other end of that... Um, he was into fly fishing or getting into fly fishing. He'd never fly fished before, but he was in, into fishing. And, uh, you know, I got him tying flies and stuff. And I think I was his mentor on the other side of that. And I think there's something really important about that kind of parody in these kind of mentoring relationships. I, I, I think they're wrong when they establish a hierarchy. I think a lot of people think of mentoring relationships in music uh, as like that movie Whiplash. I don't know if you've seen that, but it's it's been a subject of conversation for the last few years in jazz education and in jazz more broadly because the the mentor is a screaming, abusive, you know, condescending guy, um, and then at the end, the kid who's under his mentorship is supposed to be grateful. 
I guess. I mean, the movie ends disastrously for everybody, so I guess it's not promoting us a positive model, but uh, but still, it's what people think of, I think, as that type of relationship. It's interesting because I, I, I hate the movie. It's cringy to watch, frankly. Um, and there's a scene in it where the mentor is playing jazz in a nightclub, and uh, I, I, he sucks. He's terrible. He's a terrible musician. And the kid, I, I don't know. I don't think that it's. I don't think that there's a recognition that he's terrible in the, in the film, but he sucks. And and I, I'm not trying to like beat up on people's musicianship, but it seems to me that if you're going to hold yourself to like, oh, you made a time mistake in the third measure, and I'm going to scream at you till the veins pop out of my head you had better be a heck of a lot more competent in your own musical ability than the person you're screaming at. I just don't think those relationships ever work categorically, period. I think it's a terrible model. You know, not to think about the whiplash thing too much because I really don't care and it might not be relevant, but when I think about these mentoring relationships in jazz, the, the teacher-mentor in in Whiplash is obsessed with Charlie Parker and he keeps saying he keeps thinking that he's going to like drive one of his students to become the next Charlie Parker. Well, Charlie Parker famously didn't have mentors coming up. He had people who discouraged him and he just sort of through force of will on his own mentored himself. He did, however, have peers and friends, significantly Dizzy Gillespie, who probably extended Parker's life and career by a long time by being a sort of down-to-earth regular family man who could kind of bail Bird out and get him straightened out when he was falling down. So, yeah, Charlie Parker might have had better chops than Dizzy Gillespie, but I, I don't know if it did him a heck of a lot of good. Dizzy Gillespie was obviously a better model to follow for young musicians. And maybe more to the point of the movie, people who considered... Charlie Parker, a mentor, were destroyed by the model he made. Most of them ended up strung out on heroin like he, like he was. There's a heartbreaking story by Jackie McLean who talks about how he was mad at Bird when he died because Charlie Parker had borrowed his saxophone and pawned it. And so Jackie McLean was a 17-year-old kid at the time, already following his mentor into drug addiction and loaned him his horn uh, and his mentor pawned it for drugs and didn't bring it back. So this, the, the frames of reference in the film are totally out of whack, but also points to some larger flaw in those mentoring relationships that are maybe fundamentally abusive. Part of what has me thinking about this is that I lost two academic mentors recently. When I think about these two women I lost, who were mentors to me in the last summer, I I don't think they would they would have never thought they were my mentor, and and in, in many ways they they were not. You know, they just were people I had a working relationship with and they were just responding out of a professional obligation. I was never friends or even particularly friendly with them and yet the kind of mentorship that they offered just based on their sort of own professional obligations was really profound to me. I'm not saying they didn't like me or I didn't like them but we never chatted 
we didn't get a beer together. And I think that's why they are so important to me as professional mentors, because that's the kind of relationship I have with my students. My relationship I have with my students is I'm going to help you if you ask for help, because it's my job. Now, I go out of my way, and I think I move around, and I think maybe I advocate for these students maybe more than some other people, maybe less than some other people. I don't know. I don't really care. It's not a competition for me. But I'm not doing it because I'm friends with the students, and I'm not, and I don't have a relationship with them that goes beyond that. Very few of these students are people who stay in my life, and if they do, it's because they re-enter my life in a different way. But just sort of doing the right thing and not questioning it and not being selfish or having a motivation for it is another kind of mentoring. I know it sounds strange to say, but somebody simply doing what they're supposed to do without strings attached and seeing that is profound, or it has been to me at least. I don't really want to go into it, but I guess, you know what makes that so profound is having seen the other side of that, having seen the whiplash model more times than than I wish I had. Not just applied to me, but also, you know, around me and in my world. When it comes to one of these mentors, who was a, a colleague in my department who we lost recently, I have to say, even though she supported me in some really important ways, I was also a little bit terrified of her. I remember one time she pinned me down in the hallway And she says, Dr. Brown, what happened in the meeting? And I'm like, I don't remember the meeting. Obviously, something important happened, and it's obviously my fault. But I really have no way to recollect what she's talking about. She was one of those people that I... I always felt like she always knew exactly what was going on behind the scenes. And and I think, in fact, sometimes she did. And and sometimes I got some, I I know, support that I never even heard about. I guess what I'm advocating for here is a model where those who mentor least mentor best, the people who just kind of give you a little bit of support in the right moment, but then act like it's not a big deal and go back to just being friends with you or co-workers or neighbors or a guy at the boat ramp but will make those little gestures are the people at least in my life who have made the most difference to me I'm a pretty independent person I, I I would have a hard time with an overbearing mentor I wouldn't I wouldn't stand for it I think and in fact you know when I think back about my academic life I've had a couple of mentors who were overbearing and and who wanted to maybe leave their imprint a little bit too strongly on me, and I've always rejected that, even if it seemed like a, even if it seemed like a bad decision professionally at the time, I wasn't going to have it. Um, but the people who sort of like gently helped me along the way, uh, I'm really grateful for them. They made the difference. I'm sure there's some people out there listening to the podcast who know me who have tried to get me to do something I didn't want to do before in life. I ain't going to do it. I've been worrying about this a lot um, as we go back to school in this online model um, because I think that that kind of gentle mentoring, it requires, uh, uh, there needs to be a sort of organic component to it. And so you run into somebody in the hallway and they say, hey, this, and you 
are there to say something, to respond to them, to recognize them, to know them. And and I think about my work as an advisor. I feel like I've done good work simply because somebody ran into me or one of my colleagues steered someone toward me. And I know that each and every one of them also have that same kind of a relationship. And when you hit in meeting for all on Zoom, it truly ends meeting for all. There's no shoulder. There's no walk back to the office. There's no walk out of the room. There's no crossing paths incidentally. And I, there are ways to make this up. I'm not giving up, but this uh, concerns me. So at least I guess for stubborn people like me, mentoring is saying the right thing at the right moment, usually in the situation where it happens by chance. I honestly don't even know it's about saying the right thing. I guess I might want to rephrase that and say it's about saying anything in the moment. I think when I think about these relationships, I mean I don't I don't think I'm anyone's mentor right now and I don't think anyone is mine. And yet Having that little bit of encouragement from somebody with more experience in a particular area has lifted me up in life more times than I can really, really say. And I'm attempting to express gratitude for it. Um, and I really recognize that it's been a consistent thing in my life. I'm not really into giving advice here, but I just think that uh, it's important to never underestimate the power of a kind word or even a smile. You know, I've met some people, I don't want to go all churchy on you, but I've met some people in life that truly had, I think, some sort of spiritual force. And um, I remember one time I was at school, it was for various reasons that I won't go into, but one of the lowest points of my life, really, and one of the lowest days of my life, maybe, and it must have been written on my face, I walked into the area in school where we had this monk who was constructing a mandala and I walked in and he must have seen it he looked at me and he smiled and he opened his arms he put his hands out to the sides and I smiled back and I want to tell you I felt some sort of profound charity coming my way from the universe at that point and I think that a smile from a stranger can be powerful in that way. It has to me. I don't know about you. You know, I think what I'm proposing here, uh, this model of mentorship that's really just friendship, I guess, doesn't really exist. It does exist, and I think it's the way that most of us have been mentored in the world, but the formal models of mentorship um, seem often to rely on the kind of hierarchy that's at work in the whiplash model, and I think it's terrible. If we think about like the ancient Greek model, that's exploitation. And there's some aspect of exploitation that's in a lot of these relationships. You know, usually in the podcast, I try to pick out relevant historical and cultural models for what I'm talking about. And, and they exist, too. But if, you, but if you think about, like, what kind of novels, poems, books are about mentorship, like explicitly about mentorship, they're nearly all negative models. I can't, I can't really think of a positive model unless you look at something that they're not necessarily calling mentor-mentee relationships in those cultural artifacts. All right, that's it. I'm out for this week. It's hard times. Be kind to each other. I guess that's what I'm saying.